I neglected to mention a moment ago when I was up here, and I wanted to do that, so I'll tell you now. Um, Jack uh, Rawson, many of you know Jack, a longtime member of this congregation, uh, fell on uh, Friday morning and uh, struck his head. It's a very serious injury. He is bleeding uh, internally inside his skull. He's uh, hospitalized, doing a little bit better this morning, his daughter tells me, but um, it's still it's pretty pretty grim situation. So uh, remember his wife Helen, please, in your uh, prayers, and uh, for Jack as well. The Lord would uh, see them through. It's a difficult time. Okay. You ever uh, set out to uh, do a job around the house that looks relatively simple? Figure it'll only take you, you know, an hour or two, and then you begin to get into this. Men, you can you identify with that? Ladies, maybe you can as well. All huh? right. Eight trips to the hardware store later, you've got the right part. But um, you know that was kind of what my week was like in uh, getting ready this uh, text for this morning's message. I uh, sometime back in November I sat down and, and kind of chose texts for the Christmas season here. Various things that I wanted to look at I had never looked at before in any kind of extensive fashion, and wanted to do that with you and. Part of that was Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, the prophecy of Emmanuel, which is where we're going to be this morning, so you might want to open up there. That's page 690 on that Pew Bible. I thought this was going to be a straightforward Christmas text, and boy was I wrong. Boy was I wrong. It appears on countless Christmas cards. That much we're sure of. And it clearly points forward to the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. But in its original context, as it's nestled away here in Isaiah chapter 7, it is neither straightforward nor simple. But since we had already um, printed the bulletins and committed to this thing, there was no way to bail on you and... uh, So I put my nose to the grindstone, did the hard work. I think we understand the text now, and uh, hopefully when we're done together this morning, you will understand it with me. So uh, put on your thinking caps, and let's uh, go back in time and explore this uh, ancient and mysterious prophecy given by the mouth of Isaiah. Some background material that you'll need to have uh, behind this. Well, let me do this. Let me just read for you uh, and put it in its context. And we'll talk about that background a little. Beginning in verse 1. Let's do that. Chapter 7 of Isaiah, beginning in verse 1. Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Aram, that would be Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but they could not conquer it. When it was reported to the house of David, saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son Shir Jashub, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, Take care and be calm. Have no fear and do not be faint-hearted, because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands 
on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Rebeliah. Because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has planned evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Let's put a little background around this passage, which will help, I believe, to interpret it in its context. Flip back with me, if you would, to chapter 5 of Isaiah's prophecy. And there in chapter 5, the Lord speaks to the nation. Now, the nation has been divided by this time. That is, with the death of Solomon, King David's son in 931, the kingdom was divided into two pieces. There was a civil war. The ten northern tribes known as Ephraim or Israel were united under one monarchy. And the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, Judah being the larger tribe and thus the southern kingdom being referred to as Judah, remained under the house of David, the great king of Israel. But by this time, and this is a couple of hundred years after that civil war, after that split, the nation has descended into spiritual apostasy. A blackness and a darkness has flowed across the land as the people have rejected their God. Oh, they still give Him lip service. They still enter the temple for the appropriate festivals and feasts. They still go through the rituals, but their heart is far from Him. And so God addresses the nation here through the prophet Isaiah. And in chapter 5, at the beginning of the chapter, he, He uses the analogy of a vineyard to speak of the nation. And this expresses well God's Attitude towards the people and their attitude towards Him at this point. He says in verse 1, Now let me sing now for my well-beloved the song of my beloved concerning His vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. And he goes on to say how the vineyard had been properly prepared. Into verse 2, Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. God is saying that the nation has been given all of the spiritual advantages necessary for it to produce good fruit, good grapes in the analogy here. That is the, the fruit of a life 
in union with God, and yet it has produced only worthless ones. Verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, His delightful plant. He tells us here that he's talking specifically about this nation. A nation that by this time is far from Him in terms of their heart. Turning back now to chapter 7. We also can pick up some additional background material. We're introduced in verse 1 to Ahaz, the king of Judah. Ahaz was one of the more wicked of the kings of Judah. 2 Kings chapter 16, verses 1-4. to We're not going to turn there, but if you want to jot it down, check it on your own. It tells how worthless he was as a king and how spiritually defiled he was as a man. And so, the one ruling on the throne of David over the dynasty of the great King David in the southern tribe of Judah is this wicked and worthless king. Beyond that, the southern tribe, the kingdom of Judah, is endangered at this point by a confederacy that is a a union of two powers that are seeking to dominate them. It's introduced to us here in in verses 1 and 2. We are told Rezin, the king of Aram, that is modern day Syria, and Pekah, the the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel. So the northern tribes have have joined in a confederacy with Aram or the Arameans, that is the Syrians, and they are now threatening to extinguish the southern kingdom. They are knocking at the door at the end of verse 1, right? Looking to wage war against the capital city of Jerusalem. They are going to end the Davidic dynasty. Verse 6 at the end, it says they're going to breach the walls and they're going to set up a puppet king, Tabil as king in the midst of the city. That is, that they are, they are seeking to bring an end to the dynasty of David, to the line of kings of Judah that are the rightful rulers of the nation as a whole. And Ahaz and his household are terrified. His court and those that are associated with him are terrified. Verse 2, it says, they shake like trees in the forest, shake with the wind. They sense the danger and they are afraid that it's all over, that the show is done. That this confederacy that is drawn up against them will prevail. That it will overwhelm them. It will break through the city walls. That they will depose Ahaz and with him the lineage of David, setting up this puppet king and ending the great promise that had been given David many, many years ago. And so Ahaz and his, his counselors are out preparing for the siege. That's what's going on here in verse 3, right? Where it says, the Lord says to Isaiah, go out and meet him. You will find him at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway. One of the things that is critical for any city to be sieged, particularly in times of antiquity, was a stable water supply. You could lay in enough food to get you through, but you've got to have drinking water. And Jerusalem at this time had no internal springs within its walls. And so they were seeking to secure a stable source of water that they might endure the coming siege. And that's where Ahaz is at the time that Isaiah the prophet goes out to meet him. This is a dark time for the nation. Judah now is on the edge of extinction. And through Ahaz standing in as the leader of that nation, the prophet Isaiah comes and he, and he 
speaks to the king and calls him to faith. He calls him back from his unbelief, from his wickedness, from his lip service, from his false piety. And he calls them to a true belief in the deliverance of their God. And it's in the midst of this encounter that this most famous Christmas prophecy is given. The prophecy of Emmanuel. So I want to look at this text a little more closely with you this morning. And then after we do that, I want to draw out from it three important lessons on the nature of faith. Three important lessons on the nature of faith that we must learn if we are truly to experience Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. Notice here in verse 10 and 11, the Lord speaks to Ahaz saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God and make it deep as Sheol or high as the heavens. God appears to this man and he offers him a chance to name his terms. Make it as big as you want or as little as you want. He talks about Sheol and he talks about heaven. He's using extremes to say that you can make this sign whatever you want it to be. In a most gracious way, Ahaz is told through the mouth of the prophet from the Lord that whatever testing miracle that he wants to choose to confirm God's word of deliverance to him, he can have it. Whatever he wants. God has promised him, verses 7 through 9, right? In verse 7, the Lord God said, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. The end of verse 9, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. He's saying to, to Ahaz, or Ahab rather, that I will deliver the kingdom. I will protect the Davidic dynasty. You can depend on me. I am your deliverer. I have been your deliverer. I am still your deliverer. And I am willing to give you whatever sign or symbol or miracle that you would like to have to demonstrate the reality and the truthfulness of my words. You pick it, Ahaz. It's of your choosing and I will grant it to you. But incredibly, Ahaz is not interested in a sign. He's not interested in a miracle. In fact, any miracle or sign that would come now would only reveal the hardness of his heart. You see, Ahaz has already made up his mind what he wants to do. He has already decided deep down inside that he would forsake Yahweh, their king, their God. He will forsake his promises of deliverance in favor of man's deliverance. Because we learn from back in 2 Kings 16 that Ahaz has already secretly made a deal with the Assyrians. That is, he has looted the temple treasury of gold and he has made a, a secret pact or a confederacy with the Assyrians. Now, the Assyrians at this time were rising to prominence in this part of the world. The Assyrians would be those that inhabit modern day northern Iraq. They were known throughout history to be one of the cruelest races of people of antiquity. And Ahaz has now made a secret deal with them to attack this confederacy of Aram and Ephraim and break it so that he would be delivered from the impending siege. This decision to draw the 
Assyrian kingdom into the conflict, ten years later would be the undoing of the northern kingdom altogether. In 722, they would be swept away. And beyond that, it would bring about the continual pressure and domination of the southern kingdom through all the days of Ahaz's son, Hezekiah. Ahaz had made a deal with the devil because he could not trust God. Notice how he responds in verse 12. I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. What noble words. Words drawn, by the way, right out of the Scriptures. Deuteronomy 6.16 You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is one of the greatest statements of hypocrisy to be found in the Scriptures. Here is this man, this wicked, faithless man who has already sealed a pact with the devil, if you will, who speaks forth these words of piety. Oh, I would never put the Lord my God to the test. I would never ask for any kind of a confirming sign. It's all a camouflage for his hypocrisy. By rejecting the offer of a sign, Ahaz is in effect rejecting not only the prophet Isaiah, but the very one who has sent him. He is rejecting the God of Israel. And so listen how it's respond, right? Verse 13, listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Isaiah the prophet sees right through it. Right through it and he cuts to the real issue. Ahaz in his official capacity as king represents not only himself, but he represents the Davidic dynasty. That the line of kings from David go through his bloodstream. He represents all of those kings. And beyond that, he, his unbelief characterizes their unbelief and the nations at large. Isaiah moves from the singular to the plural here in verse 13. When he says, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you, plural, to try the patience of men. The whole nation, their faithlessness is encapsulated in the faithless response of their leader. All are responsible and will bear the responsibility for the faithlessness of the house of David. They have worn out both man and God with their hypocrisy. Their faithlessness in the midst of danger. They have wearied the prophet by not listening to him. Now they have wearied God Himself. You know, God is long-suffering. God is slow to anger. And by the very nature of that, we can see the, the depth of the wickedness of the sin of Ahaz and his people. When you have abused the patience of God to the point where it is now exhausted, you have descended a long way into spiritual darkness. It is not just that you have exhausted the patience of men, but you have exhausted the patience of a long-suffering God. The Apostle Paul has a similar thought expressed in the New Testament in Romans chapter 2. Where there He speaks to us, those of us who 
continually tread upon the mercy and grace of God and refuse Him. He says in Romans 2, in verse 4, Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That is, God's kindness and faithfulness and graciousness that He extends to each and every one of us day by day is to lead us back to Him. Yet all too often we tread upon it. We try it. We use it up. We spit on it, if you will. The Apostle says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. You cannot continue to abuse the patience of God and get away with it. There is a wrath being stored in a bank account, if you will, and someday the CD will be cashed in. The wrath will break forth. The wrath is to break forth here upon the nation. In his hypocrisy, Ahaz says that he does not want to test God. But in fact, just the opposite is what is happening. God is testing him. And his God's patience has run out. Notice how he says to him in verse 14, therefore, therefore, because of the situation here, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Ahaz has refused to display his faith because he has none. He has refused it, but God is still to give a sign. But it will be a sign of His choosing. A divinely chosen sign that will speak of both deliverance and now judgment. It is a twofold sign. It is the same sign that carries a twin message to some deliverance to others. Judgment. And this sign has a direct relationship to the lack of faith in both the house of Ahaz and the people in God's covenant promise to David. Let me remind you, if I may, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16 of the great Davidic covenant. Remember I spoke earlier about knowing the Scriptures. When you know the Scriptures, then these things will come to you and you'll be able to draw on them and make sense of what's going on. There in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, the prophet Nathan promises to David, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 4, If your sons are careful of their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David, to you and to all of your descendants, there is an eternal promise and covenant of one to sit upon the great throne of Israel. Provided they walk in covenant with me. But the nation has abandoned this promise. And in abandoning the promise, they've abandoned the God of the promise. And so God will give them a sign, but it will be a sign of judgment as well as a sign of deliverance. The sign that God chooses to give to the house of David is a child. The sign of a child. That same sign, by the way, is developed over in 
chapter nine, right? Verses six and seven for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. The sign of God's choosing is that a child will be given to the nation. And the infancy of this child will be the measurement of time that Judah is yet to suffer. Verses 15 and 16. He talks about a child's diet, right? Curds and honey. Curds is sort of like it's coagulated milk. It's, it would be like cottage cheese. This child will have a diet of cottage cheese and honey, he talks about. Which, by the way, in context here is a diet of scarcity. A diet of poverty. Over verse 22, it talks about that. This child will know a diet of poverty and scarcity. And by the time the child is old enough to know good and evil, right and wrong, verse 16, the deliverance will come. The confederacy that has been arraigned against you will be broken. The prophet says. Together, these statements indicate the nation will endure a a short but difficult period of time. And then God will deliver them. The temporal deliverance will come. But because the house of David is disbelieved, God will will fulfill His covenant to bring the Messiah, but it it will come at a later time and it will come through this child of judgment. The nation may despair at God and His faithfulness, but God will intervene anyways and out of the wreckage of that nation He will raise up a true son of David. One who rightfully belongs on the throne. One who embraces the God of the covenant by faith. The sign that God will give is mysterious. And it is difficult to understand. I mean, clearly, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 says that it was fulfilled in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if the fulfillment did not come until 700 years after the sign was given, in what sense does it apply here to Ahaz? It's a huge question. Also, the statements here in verses 15 and 16 about the age of the child and his diet and so forth, they clearly refer to the promised one. But they're problematic too if the deliverance doesn't come until the future. How does this sign work? To be a sign to Ahaz at his place and time and yet a greater sign to the whole house of Israel. House of David. How do we understand prophecy? Well, let's do this. Let's make some observations. And then we can from that perhaps draw some conclusions. Let's make some observations about this sign itself. Verse 14. The sign comes from the Lord Himself. Do you see that? Therefore, the Lord Himself, Adonai, or Master or Sovereign One, will give the sign. And that implies a supernatural origin to this sign. This sign has a supernatural origin. Beyond that, the word behold, you see it? The word behold is there. that That is a way to point to something that is stunning in nature. Something that should cause you to sit bolt upright in your chair. You're reading along, you're listening, whatever, and you're kind of, yeah, 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 yeah. Whoa! What was that I just heard? That's what behold is to do, is to point out the stunning nature of this particular sign. Behold, he says, a virgin will be with child. Pay attention. This sign has to have significance for both Ahaz, to whom it's given, 
and to the house of David. Beyond that, he speaks about a virgin. Alma in the Hebrew. It means a young married woman. Literally a maiden. Choose that way in Genesis 24, 43. A young unmarried woman. Did I say married at first? Fix the tape, please. It is a young unmarried woman. Okay. Who has not, who, who is sexually pure, has not engaged in any sexual activity. A maiden. The uh, Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, translates the word Alma as virgin. And that's where Matthew picks it up and carries it into his prophecy of Matthew 1.23. It is a virgin who will be with child. The sign is a virgin who conceives and gives birth to a child. That is the supernatural sign that ought to cause you to sit up straight in your chair and take notice. The mother names the child Emmanuel. God with us or God is with us. And while this child is still young, he will experience poverty and God will overthrow in, the, in that short span of time, the overthrow the confederation that has been threatening the very survival of the Davidic dynasty. That happened, by the way, just two years later. Tiglath-Pileser III killed Rezin, the king of Aram, and destroyed Damascus, shattering the confederacy. Who is this one? And how are we to understand this sign? Some say that it, the, uh, the coming one, the prophesied one here, is a, a boy who will be born as a son of Isaiah the prophet himself. They look over to chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. It says, so I approached the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. They say there, there's your answer right there. In the context, it's the prophet himself who gives birth to the son. That's the fulfillment. The problem with that is that his wife is not a virgin. She already has a child. Chapter 7, verse 3, right? We were already introduced to him. Shear Jashub. And the son born in chapter 8, verse 3, is not named Emmanuel. He's got that other very long and hard name. Right? So I don't think it's a boy born to the prophet Isaiah. I don't think that fulfills what's going on here. Others will say that it is a boy born to a woman within the palace who was a virgin prior to her conception, and this new mother names her child Emmanuel. Now, that sounds really good, except there's one problem. There's no textual evidence anywhere to indicate such a supposition. It's completely speculative. It's been proverbially sucked out of their thumb. And so we reject that. Not only that, it, it, it doesn't properly carry the weight of the supernatural origin of this sign. That leads us to a third option, and that is that the boy is the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of Mary while she was still a virgin. Matthew clearly says that Jesus fulfills this prophecy. The text here in Isaiah 7.14, it indicates that the virgin will be with child, implying that her status as a virgin is not lost through this pregnancy. This accounts for the supernatural Nature of the sign itself. And the sign is given not just to Ahaz, but to the whole house of David. And, and so the prophecy can carry forward to each succeeding generation, each succeeding king. 
that can extend into the future well beyond the lifetime of Ahaz. The difficulty with this understanding is how do we how do we understand the verses 15 and 16 that talk about the child's early years and relate them to the historical deliverance of the nation in 732 B.C.? How can that be? I'm glad you asked that question. Here's an answer for you. We can resolve this by understanding this prophecy as coming in the form of a vision to Isaiah. That God gave him a vision. Through his spiritual eyes and the vision, Isaiah is able to look forward down through the corridors of time and to see the coming one. Scripture talks about Abraham saw his day and rejoiced. So down through the corridors of time, in a form of a vision, the prophet Isaiah sees a virgin conceiving a child, giving birth to this great deliverer. And in the time period of the roughly two years that are implied in verses 15 and 16 of the deliverer's life, that is in the infancy of the deliverer, that measure of time the nation of Israel will be rescued from this confederacy that has been arrayed against it. Before the child comes of age, the danger will be removed. Now there's precedent in Scripture for these kinds of things. Think with me of the Apostle John and the book of Revelation, right? The prophecies of Revelation. How John is able to look forward in time and describe in, in amazing detail events that have yet to occur. I think what's going on here in Isaiah and this prophecy of the Emmanuel is that same kind of thing. It is a prophetic vision that he then relates to the king. Now, to be fair, there is a fourth position that some offer, and that is a, they offer a combination position of a, of a historical child born in the palace and the future fulfillment in Christ Himself. The problem with my estimation of that kind of double fulfillment without going too deeply into it is it doesn't take, I don't believe, proper account of the supernatural nature of this sign at the time it's given. What can we learn in the time that remains? What can we learn from this Emmanuel prophecy? On your handout, I've given you three lessons on faith. Let's make some application from this. The first is that evidence cannot create faith. It can only confirm it. The first lesson on faith is that evidence cannot create faith. It can only confirm it. When Isaiah appears to Ahaz, he encourages him to put God to the test, but really it's Ahaz who is being put to the test. Does he have faith? Will he respond in faith to the Word of God given in verses 7 and 9 that this confederacy will not end the Davidic dynasty? Or will he reject it in unbelief? I mean, there's no doubt in anybody's mind, I don't think, no serious doubt, that Ahaz on the surface appeared to be a religious man. That as the king of the nation, he would continue to enter the temple at the appropriate time, offering the right sacrifices, saying the right words of prayer and praise and so forth. 
His lips would be speaking to God, but his heart would be far from him. But now, God, through the prophet Isaiah, challenges him to commit himself wholeheartedly in faith. Offering to him evidence. But he doesn't want the evidence. He doesn't want it. Why? Because he's already made up his mind not to trust God. His mind has already been made up. He doesn't want evidence. It would be inconvenient. It would be embarrassing. It would call his prior decision into question. It would be an obstacle that he would have to overcome. Something that would have to be explained away. And so evidence is the last thing in the world he wants. Years ago when I worked in banking, we had a slogan. It went like this. A man persuaded against his will remains of the same opinion still. Ahaz is such a man. He has preformed his opinion. He has made his commitment, his faith commitment. In the Assyrian nation, their cruelest people to live to that point in time. He's made his commitment to them. They will deliver him. Not God. The great German reformer Martin Luther wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will. In that book, Luther rightly noted that the human will is not free to decide for or against God, but is in bondage to sin and lust and must be rescued by an outside force. That is the Holy Spirit of God acting in regeneration. That's the situation here with Ahaz. No amount of evidence, no sign, be it as high as heaven or as low as Sheol, will ever convince this man. Evidence cannot create faith. It can only confirm it. This is the Christmas holidays. You're going to be getting together with family and friends. When you get together with your family and friends and you speak to them about the truthfulness of Christ and His claims upon their life, do not offer them endless examples of evidence and the reality of who Christ is. That is not what they need. They do not need to know the latest bit of evidence demonstrating Christ as Messiah. What they need is to be confronted with the real issue of their heart, and that is that they are in rebellion against their Creator. That is that they have chosen to live their own way. That they are unwilling to submit to God. That their unbelief is not an intellectual problem. It is a moral problem. Secondly, the second lesson on faith that we can learn is that when we cannot trust God, it suddenly makes good sense to trust our worst enemy. When we cannot trust God, it suddenly makes good sense to trust our worst enemy. You know, one definition of sin is insanity. To shake your fist in the face of your Creator, I think is a very good definition of insanity. For you cannot win. Ahaz, turning to the ruthless Assyrians for deliverance, was an act of insanity. It was an act of insanity. 
It would be the equivalent of the United States government going to Iran and asking them for assistance in fighting terrorism. And by the way, that insane notion does float out there, right? You do not go to your enemy to ask for help. Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, was continually pressured by the Assyrians. Continually, throughout his long reign, the Assyrians continued to pressure him by virtue of his father's deal earlier. Hezekiah himself ultimately fell into the same trap his father did. He went down the same primrose path. You remember? He invited the Babylonians to come in to see his kingdom after he had been sick and then healed. Do you remember that? He invited in the Babylonians. He turned to them for help to put off the Assyrians who were pressuring him. He invited the fox into the hen house. You can read all about it in Isaiah chapter 39, 2 Kings chapter 20. So, like father, like son, when you cannot trust God, it suddenly makes good sense to turn to your worst enemy. Once we abandon a heartfelt conviction that God truly cares for us and that He's intimately involved with us, once we abandon His perspective in favor of our own, then suddenly the decisions which are utterly foolish from God's point of view, all of a sudden become intelligent and wise. Let me ask you a question. How many times as a Christian have you fallen prey to the ravages of sin because you distrusted God's kind intentions toward you? How many times have you committed the sin of Ahaz in rejecting God in favor of your own worst enemy. Last week, we handed out a gift to one per family to everyone who was here called a Gospel Primer for Christians. In that Gospel Primer on page 18, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it this week, but I commend it to you. I can't commend it enough to you. But in there on page 18, it, it speaks about the reasons for the Gospel for the believer. We know why the unbeliever needs the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, right? To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. But it is the, it is the power of God for the Christian as well. The believer needs the gospel. And there on page 18, the author speaks about reasons why as believers we need to be, to be immersed in the gospel continually. He says it is a cure for distrust. Listen to the words. Every time I deliberately disobey a command of God, it is because I am, I am in that moment doubtful as to God's true intentions in giving me that command. Does He really have my best interests at heart? Or is He withholding something from me that I would be better off having? Such questions, whether consciously asked or not, lie underneath every act of disobedience. However, the gospel changes my view of God's commandments in that it helps me to see the heart of the person from whom those commandments come. When I begin to train my thought with the gospel, I realize that if God loved me enough to sacrifice his son's life for me, then he must be guided by that same love when he speaks his commandments to me. Viewing God's commandments and prohibitions in this light 
I can see them for what they are. Friendly signposts from a heavenly father who is seeking to love me through each directive so that I might experience his very fullness forever. When controlling my thoughts as described above, the gospel cures me of my suspicion of God, thereby disposing me to walk more trustingly on the path of obedience to his commands. The gospel is a cure for our distrust of God. Third lesson on faith from this text. God with us means that we must believe that no one else is with us. God with us, Emmanuel, God with us, means that we must believe no one else is with us. The Scripture says that our help comes from who? From the Lord. Our help comes from the Lord. It is not Christ plus our resources. It is God with us. We must recognize the fact, beloved, if we could get by on our own, then there is no need of an incarnation. There is no need for the second person of the triune Godhead to condescend to to take upon Himself human flesh and to die that miserable, wretched death on a cross. The very fact that God became man and died for our sin, it reveals to any thinking person that by ourselves we cannot be made right with our Creator. We do not have it within us. There is no power or person within this creation who can overcome the problem of our sin. We need a Savior from outside to enter in. We need someone from outside the box, if you will, to rip open the lid and to thrust His hand in and to deliver us. We need Emmanuel, God with us. We need the Incarnation. And beyond that, our dependence upon Christ does not end with our salvation. Jesus Himself said in John 15.5, Apart from Me, you can do what? Say it again. One more time. Why is it that we so often try then? huh? Apart from Me, you can do nothing. He doesn't say, apart from Me, your productivity will be diminished. You'll do okay, but you know, you'll be about a C student. You want A's, then you need me. That's not how he expresses it at all. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. You believe that? Let me uh, leave you this morning with a simple test. This is a one-question exam. Okay? This is a one-question exam. It is designed to reveal your level of dependence upon Christ. 
do you pray as much as you ought to? Well, do you? Do you pray as much as you ought to? That will reveal the level of your dependence upon Christ. Emmanuel, God with us. If God is not with you this morning, is your personal Savior. If you are not sure that you are right with your Creator, if you were to pass into eternity today, and no man knows his time, if you were to stand before Him and He were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to Him? If you do not know, if you cannot lay your head on a pillow tonight in confidence, knowing that should your eyes not open again, that you would be in the presence of Christ, there is no better time to make it right than now. Emmanuel, God with us. As we close this service, there will be some folks that will be over here by this lighted cross. The purpose of them there is to open the Scriptures with you to help you to know the reality of life in Christ. If you're not sure, you have questions, then you come and you speak with them and let them show you from the Bible how you can know Christ for sure. Let me pray. God, our Father, it is by grace that we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, lest any man should boast. You are the great gift-giving God, and the greatest gift ever given is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, I pray that this Christmas we might receive that gift in a new and fuller way. For those of us, our Father, who have received the gift in, his, in salvation, that You would enable us to embrace that salvation more fully. That we might walk in a way that is worthy. And Father, those who have yet to receive the gift, may this Christmas, the time that they too would come to understand life everlasting. Do Your work in us. We pray for Your namesake. Amen.